Now, NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio with Lee Whitting. Whether you're listening on TalkZone, by podcast, through the archives of our ad-free shows on our YouTube channel, or connected through the incredible content of our Facebook page. Since this show is airing on President's Day, I thought we might take a look at George Washington's vision of democracy and how remarkably it sounds like visions learned from NDEs. It seems clear from the history that God had a hand in protecting and instructing America's first president. Coming from a limited education and a political upbringing framed by British monarchy, Washington nevertheless had a vision of humanity ultimately united in equality and fairness under a citizen vote, self-determined government. Events during the French and Indian War nearly cost Washington his life, so it came as no surprise that a report on Pittsburgh's WESA National Public Radio back in 2013 was titled, George Washington's Near-Death Experiences in Western PA. There were at least two occasions when Washington could have died even before the American Revolution. The first was when he was poling a raft across a Pennsylvania River. He fell in, and the weight of his heavy wool clothing dragged him under before they could pull him out. But no doubt it was Washington's part in the July 9, 1755 battle of the British against the French and Indians that was certainly spiritually transformative for him. His life literally hung in the balance. During the two-hour battle, the 23-year-old Colonel Washington rode back and forth on the battlefield, delivering General Braddock's orders to the officers and troops. The officers had been a special target for the Indians. There were 86 British and American officers involved in that battle, and by the end, George Washington was the only officer who had not been shot down off his horse. He was the only officer left on horseback. The next day, Washington wrote to his family, describing that after the battle was over, he had taken off his jacket and found four bullet holes through it, yet not a single bullet had touched him. Several horses had been shot from under him, but he had not been harmed. He told them, By the all-powerful dispensations of providence, I have been protected beyond all human probability or expectation. Washington openly acknowledged that God's hand was upon him, that God had protected him and kept him through that battle. And Washington was not the only one to recognize God's hand in his bulletproof salvation. Fifteen years later, in 1770, Washington returned to the scene of that battle. An old Indian chief from far away, having heard that Washington had come back to those woods, traveled a long distance to meet with him. He sat down with Washington, and face to face over a council fire, the chief told Washington that he had been a leader in that battle 15 years earlier, and that he had instructed his braves to single out all the officers and shoot them down. Washington had been singled out, and the chief said that he personally had shot at Washington 17 different times, but without effect. Believing Washington to be under the care of the Great Spirit, the chief instructed his braves to cease firing upon him. He then told Washington, quote, I have traveled a long and weary path that I might see the young warrior of the great battle. I am come to pay homage to the man 
who is the particular favorite of heaven and who can never die in battle. There are a number of supernatural encounter stories attributed to George Washington during his life and after. They include a prophetic vision during the hard winter at Valley Forge and reports from General McClelland about a dream he had in 1860 in which a vision of Washington conveyed information to him about the Civil War. President Lincoln believed McClellan's report of the vision because Lincoln said that he himself had had a personal visit from George Washington's spirit. There is a connection between heaven and earth embodied in the Lord's Prayer, which says, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the phrase, as above, so below, is not only meaningful, but Jesus made it clear that how we treat one another not only matters here and now, but determines where we go after we die. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus describes the judgment of the nations, the separating of the sheep from the goats. As Wikipedia lays it out, verses 31 through 46 quotes Jesus regarding how he said that all of the people will be assembled before him, and he will separate them one from another, with some who will inherit the kingdom, while others will go to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus says the separation is based on whether or not someone gave food to the hungry, gave drink to the thirsty, welcomed the stranger, clothed the naked, took care of the sick, and took care of those in prison. Today, the country is divided on whether our government should help those in need with money made available collectively or else used to cut taxes even more for corporations and the very rich. A few billionaires with a conscience are actually petitioning the IRS these days to raise their taxes out of simple fairness. The choice to follow Jesus' wish for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven is reflected in both the personal and the democratic choices we make for ourselves and through our government. And this unity of purpose to do God's will is not only biblical, but ingrained in the founding of our country. So on this President's Day, let's look at what First President George Washington had to say in his farewell address, where he reflected on his own vision of God's will for America and how it corresponds with the truth we learn from those people who have traveled to the other side or to paraphrase the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as endy ears have witnessed it in heaven. One note, the speechifying of Washington's day was both uh, elegant and elaborate. To make it fit the abridged language of today, I've simplified the vocabulary, but kept the meaning of his words. In his farewell address, given on September 19, 1796, George Washington said, The unity of government, which makes you one people, is now dear to you. It is justly so, for it is a main pillar of your real independence, the support of your tranquility at home, your peace abroad, of your safety, of your prosperity, of that very liberty which you so highly prize. It is of infinite importance that you recognize the immense value of your national union to both your collective and your individual happiness, that you should cherish an unmovable attachment to it. Think and speak of it as the heart of your political safety and prosperity. Preserve this unity with jealous anxiety, discounting any suggestion that it can be abandoned, and indignantly frowning upon every attempt 
to alienate any portion of our country from the rest, or to enfeeble the sacred ties which now link us together. So let's pause here for a moment in his speech to consider what near-death experiencers tell us about the other side, the very nature of the light. It is that we are one in love, that our souls collectively are at one with the source of all creation. All people who practiced love during their lives, even imperfectly, are unified by love in the hereafter. It was that recognition that inspired Washington and the other founding fathers to proclaim that all men, meaning all mankind, are created equal, and to start building a democracy with its goals founded on that belief. So to continue Washington's address. Citizens by birth or choice, our common country has a right to concentrate your affections. The name American, which belongs to you, must always exalt patriotism more than any local discriminations. With slight shades of difference, you, you have the same religion, manners, habits, and political principles. Now let's pause for a moment in that statement. Washington was smoothing over some profound differences that existed in the society of his times and which, to some extent, continue today. While he himself was a Freemason, Catholics, Protestants, Jews, residual Tories, slaveholders, and abolitionists, Indians and white settlers, gays and straits, disenfranchised women, all were calling themselves Americans too, and they were in need of expanding democracy. But through all those differences, Washington termed patriotism as the love which should unite us in overcoming those differences. NDEers know that God loves us all and doesn't much care how we label ourselves by religion or gender or race or class, but by the degree to which we honor the unity implied by our democracy. The patriotism says we practice love and compassion to all other Americans. Of all the forms of government, democracy best lends itself to freeing people to pursue the life they aspire to while governed under laws administered fairly and equitably. So Washington's farewell address continues. You have a common cause, fought and triumphed together. The independence and liberty you possess are the work of joint councils and joint efforts of common dangers, sufferings, and successes. And every part of our country finds the freedom to practice their own legal interests is the most important reason for carefully guarding and preserving the unity of the whole. Now, most NDEers report they love the perfection they find on the other side, even while those souls there may be following very different interests. The only unity there is the unity of love. And those who return voluntarily, return to this pale shadow of heaven on earth, come back in the belief that we can do better by expanding our values of loving kindness, that we can mirror heaven here on earth, even if that mirror sometimes reflects badly on us. As long as we draw breath, it is our God-given responsibility to strive for that unity, that oneness, not built on sameness, but built on equality of freedom for all that is at the core of our democracy. Again, Washington's address continues. Your unity, your union, ought to be considered a main prop of your liberty, and the love of the one ought to endear you to the preservation of the other. 
These considerations speak to every reflective and virtuous mind. The continuance of the union is a primary object of patriotic desire. Is there a doubt whether a common government can embrace so large a sphere? Well, let experience solve it. As to the causes which may disturb our union, it's a matter of serious concern that by characterizing political parties by geographic discriminations, north and south, east and west, conniving men may churn up a belief that there is a real difference of local interests and views. One way political parties acquire influence within particular districts is to misrepresent the opinions and aims of other districts. Shield yourselves against the jealousies and heartburn which spring from these misrepresentations. They alienate one from another, those who ought to be bound together by fraternal affection. Well, what Washington was referring to here in terms of geographical differences such as north against south reflects the U.S. Constitution's initial failure to deal with the economic and racial aspects of slavery. There is no three-fifths man or woman. ND years know from their encounter with the light that all souls are loved by God, no matter what race, religion, sex, social status, or other differentiation they may have been labeled with on earth. So what's with us in our divisions? They do not come naturally to us, but are seeds of evil planted by forces that seek to divide and conquer us on earth and keep us from gaining heaven in the hereafter. When we get divided by hate, American democracy and our own souls are the losers. So to continue Washington's address, to make your union effective and permanent, government for the whole is indispensable. This government of our own choice was adopted upon full investigation and mature deliberation, free in its principles, in the distribution of its powers, a uniting security with energy and containing within itself a provision for its own amendment. It has a just claim to your confidence and your support, respect for its authority, compliance with its laws, acquiescence in its measures, are duties enjoined by the fundamental maxims of true liberty. The basis of our political system is the right of the people to make and to alter their constitutions of government. But the constitution which exists till changed by an explicit and authentic act of the whole people, is sacredly obligatory upon all. The very idea of the power and the right of the people to establish government presupposes the duty of every individual to obey the established government. End years know the dictum as above, so below. It tells us there is an underlying basis of love that transcends all structural considerations of religion language, local custom, and the like. It is that very underlying love that gives Americans the freedom to worship as they please, marry whom they love, read and write what they want, live in whatever part of the country they want, etc., etc. So, here's the deal. George Washington says, All obstructions to the execution of the laws, all combinations and associations of whatever plausible character with a real design to direct, control, counteract, or awe the regular deliberation and action of the constituted authorities are destructive of the fun this fundamental principle and fatal. They serve to organize factions, to give it an artificial and extraordinary force, 
to put in the place of the delegated will of the nation the will of a party, often a small but artful and enterprising minority of the community, and according to the alternative triumphs of different parties, to make the public administration the mirror of the self-serving and incongruous projects of factions, rather than a government's of uh, consistent and whole plans formed by common councils and modified by mutual interests. However, combinations or associations of the above, de above description may now and then answer popular ends, they are likely over time to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will subvert the power of the people and usurp for themselves the reins of government destroying afterwards the very engines of democracy which lifted them to their unjust dominion, domination. The domination of one faction over another gets sharpened by the spirit of revenge. In different ages and countries, revenge has uh, perpetrated the most horrid enormities, in itself a frightful despotism, and this leads at length to a more formal and permanent despotism. The disorders and miseries which result gradually make the minds of men seek security and comfort in the absolute power of an individual. And sooner or later, the chief of some prevailing faction, more able or more fortunate than his competitors, turns this disposition to the purposes of his own elevation built on the ruins of public liberty. Without looking forward to an extremity of this kind, which nevertheless ought not to be entirely out of sight. The common and continual mischiefs of political parties are sufficient to make it the duty of a wise people to discourage and restrain it. It serves always to distract the public councils and enfeeble the public administration. It agitates the community with ill-founded jealousies and false alarms, kindles the animos animosity of one part against the other, foments occasional riot and insurrection. It opens the door to foreign influence and corruption, which finds a facilitated access to the government itself through the channels of party passions. Thus, the policy and the will of one country are subjected to the policy and will of another. And in thinking about the character of political leaders, George Washington here speaks of the critical importance of faith and morals. Washington said, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim to be a patriot who is working to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. The mere politician, equally with the pious man, ought to respect and to cherish faith and morals. A whole book could not trace all the connections they make with private and public goodness. Let it simply be asked, where is the security for property, for reputation, for life, if the sense of religious obligation deserts the oaths which are the instruments of investigation in courts of justice? And let us with caution indulge the suggestion that Morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail without religious principle. 
As Washington stresses the importance of faith and morality in the maintenance of democratic values, let's pause here for a moment to consider the reports of NDEers who have experienced distressing, frightening NDEs. They almost always describe the horror as one of separation, from descriptions of being alone in an endless darkness, to being cut off from community, to being in a self-imposed hell of emotional regret. These experiences are relatively few and far between, but they do indeed exist. And they exist to remind us our obligation on earth is to learn to practice compassion, to learn to practice love. These are the faith and moral values Jesus taught. Washington's address continues. It is substantially true that virtue or morality is a a necessary source for popular government. The rule indeed extends with more or less force to every species of free government. Who that is a sincere friend to it can be indifferent to attempts to shake this foundation. Promote as an object of primary importance, then, the institutions for the general diffusion of knowledge. In proportion, as a government gives force to public opinion, it is essential that public opinion should be enlightened. Against the insidious wiles of foreign influence, believe me, fellow citizens, the jealousy of a free people ought to be constantly awake since history and experience prove that foreign influence is one of the most baneful foes of Republican government. And here I'll end those excerpts from George Washington's farewell address delivered on September 19th, 1796. They are wise on the subjects of strength and oneness, Strength and Faith and Sharing and Love, written for the ages and motivated, at least in part, by Washington's spiritually transformative experiences. A hundred years before Washington, the great philosopher Spinoza declared as a Proposition 15 of the Ethics that, quote, whatsoever is, is in God, and without God, nothing can be or be conceived, end quote. Spinoza also wrote that democracy is, of all forms of government, the most natural and the most consonant with individual liberty. Abraham Lincoln, uh, embroiled in the Civil War, quoted Jesus when he said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. These days, our foreign dictatorships, besides hitting our country with cyber attacks and ransomware, are feeding Americans a steady diet of political lies and racial prejudice through our own social media platforms. They say to themselves, divide and conquer. If we can poison U.S. citizens with lies and turn Americans against one another, then we can conquer and destroy their democracy. But what is democracy but the rational sharing of governance, the agreement to compromise on the difficult issues as we perfect our ability to share power and care for one another? Nearly all NDEers returning from the other side bring back with them the solution to all our moral and political problems, and that is to love and care for and be compassionate to one another, especially those most in need, regardless of race, religion, or cultural differences, and also to love and protect God's creation, the earth. And why on earth would anyone desire anything else? Well, why did Lucifer rebel against God and take a third of the angels with him when he fell? 
The phrase, as above, so below, gives you pause to remember there is this story in the Bible and legends earlier than the Bible of a most beautiful angel who was named Lucifer or Morning Star because of his radiance. Lucifer became so prideful, so full of himself, that he was cast out of heaven along with his followers, the fallen angels. Lucifer became Satan. The fallen angels became demons, and in their fury they became the angry corruptors of humanity. For them, hell was created because they had committed the unforgivable sin, Jesus mentions in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew 12, 31-32, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, people will be forgiven for every sin and blasphemy, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. In Mark 3, 28-29, Jesus is quoted, Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And in Luke 12, 8 through 10, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Well, N.D. ears have discovered the essential nature of God is love. In fact, some say the building block of everything is love. So those who cannot love self-condemn themselves by denying the very essence of the light, grace, and love that is called the Holy Spirit. Such lost souls have inflicted unforgiveness upon themselves by their very nature. Now, to my way of thinking, this condition is less a sin than a mental defect, a condition some psychiatrists have dubbed malignant narcissism. For example, Frank Yeomans, uh, co-author of Treating Pathological Narcissism, said in a YouTube interview, and I quote, Malignant narcissism is not only the aggrandizement of the self, but the pleasure in aggression and destruction. It is very scary when people get gratification out of being aggressive, sadistic, and destructive, but it's part of life and we'd better be aware of it. Some people with that core sense of emptiness and hollowness react in a way to bolster and strengthen their sense of self by being mean. That's pleasurable. That fills the void. That makes the self feel good when it wouldn't feel good to begin with. And a leader with these characteristics can, like the Pied Piper, bring a lot of people into their fold by promises. I mean, Hitler was such a good example. You know, we're, we're going to be the Third Reich. And these people were led to a path of their own destruction in order to save a narrative of grandiosity. A lot of people have their own insecurities and find great salvation in these narratives that ultimately lead to destruction. Well, Frank Yeomans makes no spiritual references in these remarks, but parallels to Lucifer and the nature of the unforgivable sin, as well as those who aspire to hate-driven dictatorships like Hitler's or Putin's, reek of malignant narcissism. 
those who aspire to a leadership bent on destruction simply because they cannot love are following in the footsteps of Satan. The choice is in our hands to support with truth and love or destroy with lies, violence, and hatred our fragile democracy, America's experiment in sharing political power with all the people. We call George Washington the father of our country because he set the example. He led us to overthrow an authoritarian monarchy and establish democracy in America. And then when he could have declared himself king of America, he set the example for the peaceful transition of power. Today, we are the fathers and mothers of the America to come. So on this President's Day, answer the question for those next generations, which direction, democracy, or dictatorship will we choose for our children? Well, my thanks to George Washington in setting the example for God's love and leadership, to Frank Yeomans for his insightful remarks on malignant narcissism, and thanks to you for listening. If you'd like to hear this show again or any of our more than 500 archived ad-free NDE interviews, go to TalkZone's NDE radio site and hit the Past Shows button, or go to our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, where you can subscribe to and comment on the complete NDE radio library. And be sure to check out our NDE Radio Facebook page. Just search NDE Radio with Lee Whitting in your Facebook app. And listen next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern at Talk Zone for more NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting, saying once again, thanks for listening.